Hello, and welcome to the Scientist Nightstand podcast, the audio companion to American Scientist Magazine's book section. I'm Scientist Nightstand editor Diane Timblin. Joining us today is Jamie Bartlett, author of The Dark Net, Inside the Digital Underworld, published by Melville House in 2015. The paperback edition is set for release in May 2016. The Dark Net was nominated for the Orwell Prize, was an NPR Best Book of 2015, and was included in the Washington Post's notable nonfiction for the same year. The book examines anonymous interactions on the web, exploring a range of communities and subcultures. It digs into the nuanced moral questions that arise where anonymity, connectivity, and technology meet. Jamie Bartlett directs the Center for the Analysis of Social Media at the think tank Demos, where he specializes in online social movements and the impact of technology on society. Welcome, Jamie Bartlett, to the Scientist Nightstand podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me on. So your book, The Dark Neck, focuses on the world aside from what you refer to in the book as the surface net, the world we know, most of us know through Google searches and that sort of thing. Could you tell us a little bit about what the dark net is? For me, it is two things. One, it is a sort of technical or semi-technical description of a hidden network of sites called Tor Hidden Services. That's the real scientific term, if you like, for the dark net. Tor Hidden Services, you access them with a special web browser that allows you to stay anonymous. They are incredibly difficult to censor or to close down. The URLs finish with .onion rather than the things we're used to, .com and .co.uk and so on. And this is a really quite small part of the internet, but it is a very interesting part of the internet because the features of anonymity and lack of censorship and sort of almost total privacy means that people use it for wonderful and terrible things. And you will have these fantastic sites for whistleblowers and democratic activists cheek by jowl with illegal pornography and illegal drugs markets. So that's a bit of the dark net. But I, in my book, use it as shorthand for something a little more than just that network. I used it to talk about all of the more shocking, nefarious, darker aspects of internet behaviour more generally. The internet trolling, the sort of use by neo-Nazi activists of the net, the way that the net is used for suicide forums and pro-harm communities. And, And what I wanted to try to do was to, I suppose, shine a light on those darker corners, to understand what they were really like, to understand the cultures of them, to understand why people got involved in them, and to meet the people themselves that were part of them. Some of the people that you talk to are active, say, politically on surface sites such as Facebook, and the level of anonymity is in their identity on that site. Yes, for some people, anonymity means creating a fake name on Facebook. For other people, it means creating a virtual proxy network and trying to hide slightly or obscure slightly your location. And for still others, it means going completely anonymous and doing everything under pseudonyms with a Tor hidden service site using a Tor browser. And so it's shades of anonymity. And actually, for many people, 
just that first level of anonymity, just keeping yourself a little hidden or giving yourself a fake name, that's enough to quite radically change the sorts of things you are willing to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's far, people often get, I think, quite mistaken with this and imagine that give someone a Tor browser and stick them on the dark net and they'll do awful things and actually on the surface net everything is fine and dandy. And I mean, and that is just not the case at all. <laughs> My initial thought was to ask you about the differences between the surface net and the dark net. But from reading the book, there are more similarities hmm. than one might expect as well. Well, yeah, because it's really hard with the internet sometimes because we're forced to rely on analogies and no analogy ever really works. So people say Twitter, it's like a public broadcasting system. Oh, it's like standing on a soapbox. Oh, it's like shouting in a crowded pub. Oh, it's always trying to find the right analogy for something happening online <laughs> and none of them are ever quite right. And with the dark now, I think people imagine that, and some people call it the deep web that in some ways it's layered and you get sort of deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper but the problem is that there's no such thing as depth online when you download the tor browser and you use the tor browser it's just like using any other browser it looks like an ordinary browser it feels like an ordinary browser and that's why imagining it to be so radically different is very misleading because it's not. Maybe there are extra levels of security that it brings, but actually, as a user, it really feels the same. Right. And that actually is a good segue, I think, into a passage from your book about the free market in the drugs trade. Yeah, this is from the chapter On the Road, which is about the Silk Road, that infamous darknet market, and how it worked. And what I did was to go onto the site to buy a small amount of marijuana to test the market. Right. So from On the Road, chapter about the Silk Road and market pressure. Buying drugs on the Silk Road is extremely pleasant. Browsing through the endless options, I was bombarded with special offers, free packaging, complimentary extras. Vendors were attentive and responsive. The products were of a reported high quality and competitively priced, according to my research. Here, the customer is king. The drugs market has always been characterised by local monopolies and cartels. Darknet markets have introduced a new dynamic to this world. What the famous post-war economist Albert Hirschman called exit and voice. Two features that keep organisations working to the benefit of those using them. Unhappy buyers can now express their voice via feedback and can exit a poor vendor in favour of one of over 800 others. That means vendors are forced to compete for buyers and are pinned by the review system. Through the introduction of clever payment mechanisms, feedback systems and the injection of real competition, power has shifted away from sellers and back to consumers. There is no clearer indication of who rules these markets than one of the last posts on the Silk Road 2.0 forum by the hard-headed administrator Libertas in November 2013. Hi all, my apologies to all you experiencing slow customer service response times. We are implementing changes to ensure that messages cannot be missed in future, and again, I apologise for any inconvenience that any delays in responding to your tickets may have caused, Libertas. Exit and voice on darknet markets are doing precisely what economics textbooks predict, creating a better deal for consumers. 
So that is a kind of, yes, yeah, summarizes the fact that these markets, the real secret to the darknet markets was customer service. It was feedback because everyone who bought a product would always give a score out of five and review the product. And as the creation of a highly competitive, highly functioning market that really worked. And that is not what I expected. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't trying to commend these markets to people. And I know that's what it sounds like, but I was just trying to understand why people use them. And that's why people use them. But it did, in a peculiar way to me, illustrate the power of markets generally. I mean, I'd never really thought about it much, but seeing what the market mechanism did for drugs suddenly made me appreciate what the market mechanism does for everything. Yes. So there's the illegality of it, but there's also the tension between that aspect and how frustrating it could be for law enforcement. And yet also if if someone is going to, to do this kind of thing, there's getting on your computer versus going physically out to a place you know, that may not be safe. Yeah, and, it, and exactly. And, and that almost illustrated to me the great ambiguities that you often find, the moral ambiguities that you often find with internet anonymity. It, you know, it, it makes doing bad things easier. It also creates opportunities. It also creates positive benefits, making doing those bad things safer. So it is safer to get hold of these drugs and those drugs are probably going to be safer when you take them because they're less likely to be cut with mixing substances or mixing, cut with all the different terrible things that people do tend to cut with drugs to make more money and you take away a lot of the street crime that's associated with wars over turf and street corners. So it wasn't what I expected but it kind of just created a new moral dilemma that was not the one that I'd entered the chapter imagining. I mean, I thought it was going to be quite cut and dry. This is a terrible place and people are buying drugs and kids are buying drugs and we need to do something about it. And then I came out thinking, well, actually, given that people usually do take drugs and always have done and always will do, maybe this is a better way of them doing it. Yeah, it turned out to be a more layered issue than it might have seemed at first. Yeah, and it kind of funny thing, of course, is with every single one of these online communities, the closer you look, the more morally layered it becomes. And yeah, that's almost like a lesson in life, isn't it? It's a bit like looking at a little patch of grass and it looks lifeless. And then the closer you zoom in, you see all this little, all these insects and creatures, and it's actually far more interesting than you imagined. Well, that brings me to one thing that I wanted to ask about, that there are parts of the book where any upside would be difficult to find. I'm thinking, say, in particular, the chapter on child pornography and its availability on on the dark net. How how was that experience? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's uh, it's one that even now, kind of, when you're in the thick of it, you don't always know what's happening. But there's no doubt that in doing some of the chapters, it became very dark and quite depressing and you have all these thoughts on your mind all of the time and um, you know, just constantly to sort of to be sort of crude about it, constantly thinking about subjects you'd rather not. I mean, constantly thinking about illegal pornography, constantly yeah. thinking about self-harming, constantly thinking mm-hmm. about neo-Nazis. I mean, they're difficult right. and heavy subjects, but you know, I think the, the thing that was even more... Um, troubling was actually the speed with which I got pretty used to it all and it didn't bother Mm. me that much. I mean, I started off 
say, two, three days of research on pro-anorexia and pro-suicide sites being absolutely appalled, by day five, I was no longer appalled at all. I was just completely used to it all. And by mm -hmm. day seven or eight, kind of, you know, found it all a bit blasé, a yeah. little bit dull, you know. Well, I've seen all this now, whatever. And mm -hmm. that's, that's quite worrying because I think that reflects one of the core things about all of these subcultures. People get sucked into them and very quickly stop realising the, the sort of the, how morally dubious it is, the, the activities that they're engaged in. They get, we all get used to stuff very quickly, very quickly. And I got used to it very quickly. Now imagine on pro-anorexia sites, if you're a 17 year old girl, you know, and you're also starving yourself and you're eating 500 calories a day, or you're gonna, I mean, you just see it in a different way. And that's what people don't understand that actually mm -hmm. becoming inured and becoming used to and habituated to these negative behaviors is actually really important because most of the people that I interviewed that were part of these subcultures said at some point they, they stopped even thinking it was bad. They, I mean, they were so used to it that they, and this is so true of people that, that, that view illegal pornography, that they end up not even thinking it's that big of a deal. And I, you know, mm -hmm. it sounds ridiculous to say, but I can understand that. I can mm -hmm. understand that. And I think it's really important to understand that because that is such an important part of the reason and the, the reason people get into such bad places. Mm -hmm. That the access creates a kind of normalization for them. Yeah, and I, I think the fact that particularly with illegal pornography, the fact that it is all you are, there's a mismatch between your actions on the keyboard and what you're actually, how serious the crime is that you're undertaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You all, I mean, and a lot of people justify it in this way. They say, I didn't think I was doing anything that wrong because, I mean, I was just clicking a couple of links and the links popped up and they looked like normal links. And, you know, all I did was click it. It doesn't seem that serious a thing to do. I'm not physically <laughs> right. beating anyone up. I'm not even leaving my house. Right. And I think that for, I think for some people, there's a sort of they forget that the things that you click on and do can be unbelievably serious. Right. But it right. doesn't feel like that because it feels almost harmless just scrolling about on a, you know, on a on a computer screen. Right. It would be perhaps distressingly easy to to forget or to overlook that, yeah. that this image that you're pulling up is of an actual person. Exactly, you know, that, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that, that is quite true of a lot of these subcultures. I mean, the internet trolling and stuff, that it's, yes. it doesn't feel like an actual person because it's pixels on a screen. Yeah. I don't come into this book with answers about how to solve these problems. I mean, the only the best answer I could give throughout is people need to be aware of what they're doing and people need to be recognised that there are consequences to what they're doing and people need to hopefully learn about what the risks are. I mean, that's the reason I wrote the book in the first place, because I can't see any other solution than that. And I know that's a high-minded, hopelessly optimistic proposal, but I don't think there's anything better. I just figured it's better that we know. It's right. better that we know what's out there, because people right. are going to find it anyway. And I, I'd kind of like people to go in there armed, knowledgeable, mm -hmm. informed about the risks of these things. Right. And when I speak to teachers, you know, so many teachers, they they don't even know this stuff is happening. And I just mm -hmm. I cannot I refuse to accept that that's better because I, mm -hmm. you know, I gave a talk to a group of 100 teachers a few weeks back. 
And, the, and, I, and, I, and after the talk, and I talked about the darknet markets, I talked about suicide forums, I talked about all of this stuff. And afterwards, all of the teachers came up to me saying, I, you know, I can't believe you, I didn't know about this, this is mm-hmm. really eye-opening, this is, I need to know what's going on. And there was one person in there who was a student, who was 16, and she walked up to me and she said, yeah, to be honest, that was pretty lame. I actually thought that you were going to like really say how it was, that was actually quite dull. And I was like, well, that just sums it up, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, you know what? This teacher, this book really is for teachers and parents, actually, because they're the ones that need to know about this stuff. Right. Because their kids probably know about it already. Well, I would like to thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. A pleasure. Jamie Bartlett is the author of The Dark Net, which is available in hardback in the UK and the US, soon to be available in paperback in the US in, in May 2016. And if you want to get a little more of a teaser of his book, check out the March-April 2016 issue of American Scientist, where we have published an excerpt from it. You've been listening to the Scientist's Nightstand podcast. I'm Diane Timlin. Find more books coverage, as well as loads of other fascinating stories about science and technology online at americanscientist.org. Happy reading. Thank you.